Welcome to Sharp Talk, the regular podcast of eSharp magazine. Go to eSharp.eu for free access to all our podcasts to date. This is Paul Adamson, and I'm in conversation with Bill Drozdiak. Bill Drozdiak is a senior advisor for Europe at Baclati Associates, a former foreign editor of the Washington Post, and a fellow at the Brookings Institute in Washington, D.C. Bill, you have a new book. It's called uh, Fractured Continent, Europe's Crises and the Fate of the West. It's also available, I see, in German, Der Zertfall, Europa's Krisen und das Schicksal des Westens. My first question is, what made you write this book? The European Union was going through a existential crisis um, with a multitude of challenges. Uh, the immigrants uh, pouring in from uh, Turkey and Syria, uh, the uh, Russian belligerency in eastern uh, Ukraine, Brexit uh, decision, of course, and and also the Greek debt crisis, and uh, raising the larger question of whether the euro can survive in the long term, since a one-size monetary policy doesn't seem to be able to fit all of these countries. And at the heart of all of this was Angela Merkel, the pivotal figure in Europe, some call her the indispensable leader. And I had gotten to know the chancellor uh, during my years in Germany. And I found that uh, for her, this was an overwhelming um, uh, series of challenges because she wasn't able to share the responsibilities with other leaders. Uh, normally, Germany looks to France as a co-leader, as we saw with uh, Kohl and Mitterrand, Schmidt and Giscard, De Gaulle and Adenauer. And in this case, uh, she had two very weak leaders and she was forced to carry, carry the load on her own. So I thought, these two years, uh, 2015 and 16, were uh, an existential challenge to the European Union. Since I've been involved in European affairs for uh, more than three decades, I thought it would be important to chronicle this. And so I, I the, uh, conceived a narrative for the book, which was to explore and to analyze these uh, crises <coughs> from the perspective of uh, 12 different capitals, uh, 12 chapters, 12 capitals, sort of a panoramic um, uh, look at Europe and how each of these capitals was uh, facing up to these challenges. And what was striking, of course, was that each of them uh, had different uh, facets of it. Uh, when I was in Spain, I was exploring the Catalonia crisis. I didn't know it would suddenly explode in the way it has, but it was certainly simmering. Um, in Riga, I looked at the fact that half the population is ethnic Russian. Russia was starting to use fake news and information to stir up uh, instability there. Um, in Poland, I was looking at the fact why is Poland, which receives 2 billion euros a month in subsidies from the European Union, becoming so Euroskeptic. And um, even though it was, its economy was doing rather well, it was the only country in Europe that did not suffer a recession in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis. So why were they turning illiberal? And the same, by the same token, why was Hungary doing that? These Eastern, Central Eastern European democracies, new democracies, um, turning against the EU. And then, of course, the tragedy of Greece, um, the uh, rampant unemployment, um, the, the fact that uh, suicides are soaring there, the, the sense of hopelessness afflicting the entire population, particularly young people. 
Um, and then other countries such as Italy, um, which was is seems always on the brink of the crisis. Someone told me, you know, we've been in decline since the days of the Roman Empire, and uh, yet it still never topples. But I start off with Germany as the new epicenter of power, and then go on to the other capitals. Okay, well we'll come on to some of these specifics in a second, Bill. The Washington Post uh, reviewer talks about you combining the objective distance of a well-informed outsider with a subjective warmth of someone who for a long time adopted Europe as his second home. So I'm, from that I'm taking that you are you are approaching this, this, this narrative you're talking about with these different capitals and also the institutions in Brussels with a, with a concern there that you are worried about the state of the European Union. You're not trying to wish it uh, an imminent death. Absolutely. No, I believe the European Union is one of the world's great um, achievements in peacemaking. When you look at the fact that uh, for five centuries, Germans and French um, people were either at war or preparing to go to war with each other. Now that is unthinkable. Um, and the way it's, uh, it's um, created a uh, sense of peace and prosperity among all its members is really remarkable. And I think in terms of global governance, um, the EU is a, is a remarkably successful experiment. I also put it with the intention of educating American leaders about the importance of uh, the European Union because too often in America, as we are now, we, we lapse into this period of isolationism. We think we can retreat behind our borders, but I believe strongly that uh, we, we and Europe represent the, the foundation of Western civilization and that we need and Western democracy and we need to defend those values in the, in the face of, of uh, rising challenges from autocrats around the world. You refer just now to, to Germany that's got an indispensable nation. To what extent do you think now with uh, Merkel safely re-elected for a fourth term but probably a final term that, that Germany is finally coming to terms with this with this role that it is destined to play in Europe as a leader? Uh, I think by virtue of geography alone, Germany is, is vital and pivotal and indispensable because of its location. Surrounded by nine countries, more than any other country in Europe, uh, with nine neighbors. And one of the great achievements has been to establish peaceful and prosperous relations with all nine of its neighbors. Um, um, Chancellor Merkel likes to say she tries to use that example with Putin, saying, why don't you see um, it would be in your country's interest to build up your neighbors rather than destabilize them. Um, and, and that's what Germany has done, has helped um, build them. But I think it's also um, important to realize that Germany is acutely conscious of its history, that the moment it starts throwing its weight around, even the perception of throwing its weight around it, evokes all of these ghosts of the Nazi era. I mean, just, uh, just now we're talking about Poland seeking war reparations from the Germany. And here we are 70 years after the war, three generations on, uh, and yet the Poles feel they can uh, prick the conscience of, of Germany in this way. So why Merkel has always looked for a partner. Uh, she couldn't, she didn't find it in David Cameron, she didn't find it in, from in Nicolas Sarkozy or Francois Hollande. She's extremely hopeful that, uh, that Emmanuel Macron will be somebody she can work with. There seems to be a, maybe a paradox in one of your arguments, so I'm sure you explain it to me, that you say that uh, many of the economic problems uh, 
facing EU member states are idiosyncratic to those member states and therefore need or require national solutions. Um, at the same time, um, some of this uh, autonomy has been given up clearly by, by joining the Eurozone. And so to what extent there was a tension between the, the, the margin of manoeuvre, if you like, at the national level for countries to, to dictate their own economic policy whilst nonetheless coming under the, the rules of the, the Eurozone? Uh, I think that's the uh, key source of tension right now. Where Europe will go, will it uh, um, uh, reverse and um, give back powers to some of the national capitals from Brussels, or will it try to greatly forward toward um, um, uh, the integration project? I think the mood in Europe, um, as we've seen with recent election results um, in, uh, in Austria this weekend, and also even in a pro-European country like the Netherlands, is that there is no appetite for any grand uh, United States of Europe um, scheme. So the um, tension will be, um, on the one hand, where Europe can make its weight felt in the world by um, um, using, working as a bloc, um, a unit, unified European Union, and where it can um, um, reach out to its people um, and evolve powers to the local communities. Because I think one of the important forces that I examine in the book is this backlash against globalization, which has fueled the populist nationalists, not just in Europe, but in the United States, which elected Donald Trump, and the feeling that they've been left behind by globalization that has created, in my country at least, a greater disparity between the rich and the poor who feel left behind. And those who, who, who are, are reacting against globalization say they want to be ruled closer to their own communities. And you see examples of that also in Europe, such as regional separatism, right. Catalonia, the Catalans want the, it's the wealthiest region in Spain, but they want to have greater control over their own destiny. And I think a lot of that is driven by the economic crisis in the past 10 years, which uh, disappointed a lot of people who had been told globalization will enhance your prosperity uh, even more, and it hasn't happened. Well, since you mentioned Catalonia, you, I mean, you do say that you say that each country in the EU struggles with its own unique crisis of national identity, and, and as a consequence, citizens are very ambivalent towards European integration on the one hand. And yet, on the other, there seems to be, does, in broad terms, a popular acceptance or even a desire amongst uh, ordinary citizens, quote unquote, of Europe, for, for more Europe when it comes to dealing with refugees, terrorism, um, Trump, Putin, etc., Erdogan, and Turkey. But there's no there's no agreement about the elite level for that kind of cooperation. So it's a kind of paradox when it comes to a clear public desire for, for or, uh, European cooperation in these external threats or external challenges. The elites themselves don't step up to the plate to agree a common stance. Right. Well, I think you're right. It's uh, there is a desire on the part of the public to see Europe's voice uh, stronger and more um, influential in the world whether it be on climate change, whether it be in persuading Russia to um, uh, retreat from its, uh, its belligerency in the Ukraine, and uh, whether to have sort of a, um, a counterweight to the United States, particularly at a time when we have a very nationalistic president, uh, would be important. I think Europeans uh, would like to see that, but they don't, uh, they don't see their leaders 
either for structural reasons, that it's hard to get 28 uh, countries on the same page for each of these issues, that they all have secondary considerations, or that uh, um, there's, there's simply an absence of strong leadership, that, uh, which I think is a combination of the two. But um, uh, the, the public, I think, is, is much more favorably inclined toward Europe. I mean, when you look at successful programs like the Erasmus program, which is wildly popular among young people, uh, I think 40,000 uh, students a year benefit from studying abroad, making friends. My own children have, 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 have done this and have, are, are enthusiastic about it. So there are these programs that are successful, but when you talk about Brussels dictating certain uh, detailed uh, aspects, uh, you know, whether I don't want to get into the, you know, the, the shape of bananas or cucumbers and all that, but those are the caricatures of too much intrusion by uh, Brussels bureaucracy into something that should be decided closer to the people. Okay. A final question, Bill. Uh, I have to ask you about Brexit. Um, you're an American, but you're European by adoption, so from both, maybe both perspectives, what if the UK were to leave the European Union? Uh, in 18 months' time, more or less, what impact do you think that would have, both in terms of the internal dynamics of the European Union post-Brexit, but also in terms of the US-EU relations? Well, I think it be a decision uh, that will be regretted on all sides. Uh, in the United States, uh, we will see a weakened Britain. We will see the European Union more fragmented than ever. And um, in Britain, I think there will be a slow but inexorable economic decline and um, a weaker British presence in the world, even though it will still remain on the UN Security Council. Um, so losing the cohesion of a, of a strong Europe, because Britain, let's not forget, is the most uh, powerful military uh, force in Europe. And you're taking that out of the equation it's going to be much harder for continental Europe to provide for its own security when Britain is outside of the European Union. But the UK would argue we're still at NATO. Well, they would say that it's NATO, but um, um, in America, a lot of people are saying, you know, it's time to see the Europeans start uh, assuming greater, but whether it happens through a European caucus in NATO or through the EU, uh, 70 years after World War II, uh, Americans have a lot of problems they want to both their time and resources to at home and uh, want to see the Europeans take care of their own security. We will no longer have uh, one of our closest allies, Britain, um, with the weight and influence in the world that it had in the past. That, that Britain's um, power was enhanced by its association with the European Union and that will now be uh, undermined. Okay, we have to leave it there. Bro, thank you very much.